Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider what it is the Apostle Paul wrote here as he praises your name, how he praises you with such exalted theological language as he walks through, Father, your covenant of redemption in which you chose to save us before the foundation of the world in Christ. As he walks through the historical application of that saving work in in the life and ministry, the incarnation and death and resurrection ascension of Jesus, your son. And as he walks through even this morning as we look at this, the, the application of that eternal covenant and that historical fulfillment, the application of it in our own personal experience and lives by the working of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us an ability to understand your word, that we would rejoice in the Holy Spirit, that we would see this work of God, the Holy Spirit, and Have great joy and praise, Father, your name for sending him. And for by him uniting us to your Son through faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we think of of the idea of Christian spirituality, um, we go tend to go right to claims about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does among us. We rightly do that because we're Christians and we're thinking about spirituality and thus we want to know, well, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? And throughout the series we've been going through on the Trinity, both in the first eight weeks in which I sort of laid the foundation for you, and now the last four weeks as we've been looking at some of the application of of the doctrine of the Trinity, particularly the doctrine of salvation, I've been making a central claim about what Christian spirituality is. I have claimed, and this has been a shocker to some, I've claimed that Christian spirituality can be summed up in contemplation of the Trinity. So foreign to the way we think about Christian spirituality. In other words, it can be summed up in, Christian spirituality can be summed up in knowing our triune Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Being united to and in communion with or fellowship with our triune God, the whole of the Christian life can be found in communing with our triune Lord. And it's here in Ephesians 1 that we see Paul practicing that communion. Did you guys hear what I just said? Paul is communing with our triune Lord. He knows that the entirety of his salvation is found in our triune Lord, that the whole of his Christian life is found in our triune Lord, and he's not only speaking about our triune Lord and our triune Lord's salvific work, he's actually practicing communion 
fellowship with our triune Lord. He's practicing that as he breaks forth in doxology, in praise, in worship. As he does so, he's communing with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus, he begins by contemplating the glory of Trinitarian salvation, and he explodes in praise. Really in one long, theologically dense sentence. The reason we often don't see this sentence the way we ought to is because we don't think of our doxology, our worship, we don't think of our communing with our God as being theologically dense. We usually think about it as being somewhat experientially dense, if you will, dense with all kinds of feelings and emotions, but we don't think about it as generally a thoughtful enterprise, one in which we commune with God in true thoughts about him. But Paul does, and as he becomes, if you will, the most theological, he becomes the most doxological. As he becomes the most doxological, he becomes the most theological. In other words, he can't separate that. If I'm going to praise and worship God, I have to praise and worship him for who he is, in truth. And so he lays out this incredibly long, theologically dense sentence in which he communes with every person in the Trinity. And if you've followed my exposition of Paul's text so far, you've seen that so far in the first three sentences, I really made two major assertions. First major assertion I made is that the trajectory, the direction of Paul's praise is to his Father or to the Father. That's the direction or the trajectory of his praise. It goes to the Father. Look at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what I'm arguing is that in verse 6 when he says, to the praise of his glorious grace, and in verse 12 when he says at the very end, to the praise of his glory, and in verse 14 when he says the praise of his glory, that that praise of his glory is all directed to the Father. Trinitarian praise quite naturally carries us in praise to, listen to that preposition, to the Father. For the Father in love decreed to save us. Look at Ephesians 2.18 briefly. Just go to the next page basically in your Bible. 2.18. For through him, that's Christ, through Christ, pay attention to that preposition, through Christ, through him, we both have access in one spirit, pay attention to the preposition, in one spirit, to the Father. That's the direction of the trajectory. Every time Paul speaks of the salvific work of any person in the Trinity, he returns to the praise of the Father. And his praise begins with the eternal decree of the Father to save us. He decreed to predestine us to adoption as sons, and thus he elected us to be holy and blameless in him. That's what he says in verses 4 and 5. And six, he issued that decree out of his own free love and grace. He was not constrained. He was not needy. I, I jokingly said he wasn't in heaven planning all this out, singing, I want to know what love is. 
okay? He's not foreigner, right? He's the Lord. He knows what love is better than we ever will. He decreed this out of the overflow of his love. Out of the overflow of his love, he creates and predestines and elects and redeems and sanctifies. Second, I made the argument that our Trinitarian salvation is Christ-centered. So if I said first that it's directed, or the trajectory of it is directed to the Father, God-exalting, if you will, it's also Christ-centered. That was the second argument I made. Our Trinitarian salvation is Christ-centered. We're elect in Christ. We're predestined to be sons or adoption, to adoption of sons in Christ. We're blessed in Christ. We're showered, and, showered with grace in Christ. We're given all of this in our eternal covenant union with God, Christ before the foundation of the world. We're purchased by Christ's blood, redeemed through his sacrificial death, forgiven in him. The gospel of our salvation is revealed in Christ. All of this original creation is through him, which I'm going to look at next week, and all of the new creation is through him. All things in heaven and earth are reconciled in Christ. Further, our inheritance is in Christ. Every benefit of the Christian life is found in Christ. Thus, the whole of our redemption is found in our vital union with Christ. And all of this is to the praise of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who promised us to him and promised him to us and who sent him to save us. So today, we're really turning to the third argument I want to make about our Trinitarian salvation. And that is that our union with Christ, our fellowship with the Father, is effected by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He was sent by the Father and the Son to bring us into vital union with Christ so that we would have access to the Father. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He is rightly called in Scripture the Spirit of life and sanctification, for He breathes new life and redemption into us. He is rightly called the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of Christ, for He is sent by the Father and the Son to apply their work to us. He's rightly called the Holy Spirit for his purpose is the work of application of the electing purpose of the Father and the redeeming work of the Son. The Holy Spirit breathed life into the original creation. He breathed life into Adam. And the Holy Spirit breathes new life into the new creation. So we should understand the Holy Spirit's work as affecting our Trinitarian salvation in our personal experience. That's what we're looking at today. If the Father elected to save us in eternity and the Son redeemed us in history, the Holy Spirit can be said to sanctify us or apply all of this to us in our personal experience. So today, as we look at Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, I want you to see how the Holy Spirit works to bring about our vital union with Christ to the praise of the Father. As we look at this, I want you to see how the Holy Spirit applies the eternal purpose of the Father and the historical work of the Son to you. So this morning we're going to look at two parts of the work of the Holy Spirit. You ready? Two parts. This is all preliminary, but here's the two parts. One, the, the Holy Spirit's effectual calling to union with Christ through faith. Hear that? 
his effectual calling to union with Christ through faith, and two, the Holy Spirit sealing us as Christ's own possession in union with Christ. Sealing us. I'm going to come back to those. These two works, I want to give this little caution or kind of an aside. These two works of um, the Holy Spirit, we can distinguish, but we cannot divide them. Okay, please keep that in mind. While we speak of the logical ordering of the work of the Holy Spirit in applying salvation to us, we do not generally speak of his work being temporally ordered. So as we speak about the work of the Holy Spirit, we can distinguish his work, but we can't divide it. That's true with Christ. Think about, the, think about Jesus. We can distinguish Jesus' incarnation, his law-keeping life, his spirit-empowered ministry, his death on the cross, his, his resurrection, his ascension, and his current reign, but we do not divide up that work. We say, here is Christ's work in saving us, from incarnation through current session, where he rules and reigns on the throne at the right hand of the Father. That's his work for us. The whole is Christ's work. The same can be said here. Herein is the Holy Spirit's work in saving us through Christ. Now we can distinguish the various, if you will, parts of the Holy Spirit's work, but they're one work at the end of the day. It's the Holy Spirit who's working to save you in Christ. So let's look at the first part of the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit effectually calls us to union with Christ through faith. Look at verse 13. Verse 13, chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now this entire sentence, so you know, from 3 through 14 can be grammatically challenging. Um, verses 13 and 14 have their challenges, so let me try to break it down for you. Now I'm, I'm going to try to explain in a couple of instances some technical grammar to you. I'm not going to try to get into the grammatical categories as much as I'm going to try to give you an explanation of them so you can see how this sentence breaks out. But, but notice the first two words of it, verse 13, in him. Now, who's the him? Here's a pronoun that is referring us back to who? Who's him? Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ. In Christ is what he's speaking of. In Christ, he's still speaking of our union with Christ and our whole salvation being found in him. Now, verses 7 through 12 I preached on last week, so you can go listen to that sermon if you didn't. But notice the next two words, in him you also. Now that's fascinating. You introduces a new subject in this sentence. The subject in verse 7, look down there, look at verse 7. In him we have redemption. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Go to verse 11. In him we have obtained, obtained. In verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. There's your subject, we. First person. Now it goes to second person, you. And the question becomes, why? Why does the subject switch from we have this to you have this? <clears throat> it seems that Paul is speaking in verses 7 through 12 about God's salvation of 
if you will, of Paul and of his fellow believing Jews in Christ. That's why he says in verse 12, we who were the first to hope in Christ. His point is that historically, the Jews, including himself, hoped in Christ prior to the Gentiles. The gospel went to the Jews first. His point is not, please hear this, his point is not that salvation came differently to the Jews than it does to the Gentiles. In fact, quite the opposite. He's arguing salvation came in the same way to the Gentiles that it came to the Jews. Thus you can see that Paul says in verse 13, in him you what? Also. You also. Now Paul lays this out further. Look at Ephesians 2 and chapter 11. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this Jew-Gentile issue here in salvation, but I just want you to see this laid out, Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, notice Paul's not a part of that group, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, it's speaking of ethnic Jews, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you Gentiles, who once were far off from all these benefits, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace, who's made us both. Who's both? Jews and Gentiles. One, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now notice what he says. Go to verse 18. For through him, through Christ, we both have, we both, who's we both? Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. See, our salvation, our salvation as Gentiles is in the same manner as the salvation of Jews. Decreed by the Father in eternity, carried out by the Son in history, in his redeeming work, and applied to us by the Holy Spirit. We're saved and they're saved the same way. You follow? Thus, in him you also. In him you also. Paul is saying we're all saved as a result of the election by the same Father through the redemptive work of the same Christ and by the applicatory work of the same Spirit. In him you also. You also what? In him you also what? Look at the next phrase. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in him you also what? The main verb of this sentence is found in the last phrase of verse 13. In him you also, now here's the last phrase, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That were sealed is the main verb. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in him you also, and here's the completion of that sentence, if you will, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's the main idea Paul's driving at. Now, if you look at the Christian Standard Bible, that contemporary translation that just came out recently, they actually changed the order of the Greek sentence. This is the way it's laid out in in your ESV, if you're looking at ESV, is laid out in the order of the Greek sentence largely. But if you go to the Christian Standard Bible, they've changed the order, and they've said, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, and then they give you these next two phrases that are here. 
But, but here's the main idea. In him, you also were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's the main idea of this, this sentence. The Holy Spirit is the seal God has placed upon us. You were sealed in Christ with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has sealed us in him. We're united to Christ with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the means of our sealing, and he is the seal. He unites us to Christ. But then you have these two, um, okay, you're ready for the language? You have these two adverbial participles. Right? Aren't you excited about that? Nobody, nobody comes to worship thinking, I want to get excited about adverbial participles. But, but maybe there's a few of you who are English majors who really get excited about that. But you have these two adverbial participles that attend the circumstance of the ceiling. What do I mean by that? If you don't remember your grammar, let me make it simple for you, okay? Here, here's what I mean. Just catch hold of this. There are two words here that are in some way supplementing our understanding of the main verb. You're sealed, now they're going to supplement your understanding, these two words, of the main verb. You guys follow me on that? Okay? They're going to supplement your understanding of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what are these two words that supplement our understanding of we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? The two words are, if you will, heard and believed. So notice what it says. In him you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Heard is a participle, believed is a participle. They're adverbial. They're helping out, if you will, we're sealed. They're qualifying it in some way. So let's take them together. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, now notice, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You follow how that works? In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, and a way to explain the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Now let's be careful about the word when. Okay, when is not a temporal marker. Some of your translations will even use, I think the King James will even use after. They'll use the word after. And when you, we see the word when or after, we think immediately of time. We think of temporal ordering. See, when can I have ice cream? After you finish dinner. Right? You follow that? Think of temporal ordering. Now, the answer should be whenever you want, right? <laughs> but you know what your parents tell you, okay? But be careful because this is not a temporal ordering but a logical ordering. Hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, is the logical prerequisite for believing. You have to hear the gospel of your salvation before you can believe the gospel of your salvation. How can everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved? But how can they call on the one in whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've never heard? Hearing logically comes before believing. And believing is the logical prerequisite for being sealed with the Holy Spirit. You hear the gospel of your salvation, the word of truth. You believe in him, Christ, and you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. But the normative experience of the believer is to 
Be sealed with the Holy Spirit when you hear and believe. Believers normally experience the hearing, the believing, and the sealing as one personal experience. It's not like you heard, you believed, and then one day, down the road, years later, you were finally sealed with the Holy Spirit. Or you heard in a saving way, but you chose not to believe that day, and then years later, you believed in a saving way, and then years later, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit in a saving way. Okay, That's not what's being talked about here. With that said, I want to look at this hearing and believing a bit more. Paul argues that our union with Christ and sealing with the Holy Spirit occur with hearing and believing. When you heard the word of truth, look at that phrase, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Now, the gospel of your salvation is, is an apposition to the word of truth. In other words, it's like, it's, it's like saying... Um, uh, my wife's a teacher. It's like saying, Teresa Vegas, school teacher. I, I'm just, I'm telling you something more about her. Wife of Chad Vegas, okay? I'm telling you more about her. So when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What's heard? The word of truth. And what specifically is the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation. In other words, the word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. Now how the gospel the word of truth, how was it heard? Notice the words. The gospel of what? It's not the gospel of salvation. Do you notice that? Or the gospel of my salvation? Or the gospel of his salvation? He's saying, when you, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of what? Your salvation. He's speaking here to this Gentile audience, saying, you're saved. It was not heard as an exercise of words entering the ear canal and being properly understood in an intellectual way. It was heard by Paul's audience in a manner that saved them. So it could properly be called their salvation, your salvation. They were not just hearing, but hearing in such a way that they can say, or that he can say, the gospel of your salvation. They're saved. The gospel was effectually powerful in their lives. That's what the gospel is as it is used by the Spirit to call out men and women to salvation. That's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now let's look at the word believe. It says, you were, verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. They've believed in him. They were trusting in Christ. They were looking to Christ. They heard the gospel in such a way that they believed in Christ and were saved. The gospel was preached to them, and then the gospel was believed by them. They heard the gospel, and they believed the gospel, and they were united to Christ, and they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. With that said, I want to make clear that hearing and believing in such a manner that they were saved was also the work of the Holy Spirit. Because you might say, well, we've turned to hearing and believing, so aren't we turning now to my work? And then we'll turn to sealing, and that will be the Holy Spirit's work. That's our temptation. But that's actually not what's being said here. The hearing and believing in such a way that they're saved is the work of the Holy Spirit as well. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. 
They're hearing and believing in such a manner that they were saved. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is your state. That was your state as an unbeliever. That is your state as an unbeliever. You are a sinner by nature and by choice. You are under the wrath of God. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. That's where you're walking. The desires you have are the desires that Satan has. It's not complimentary, folks. But that's what he's saying. That was your state. Now look what he says. But then you believed. Verse 4. Is that what he says? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. He made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. Who made you alive together with Christ? God did. And what person of God is the one who breathes life into folks? The Holy Spirit. God made you alive. The Father loved you. He sent the Son for you. And he made you alive together with him. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable wisdom of believers. Is that what it says? The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Now here comes faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Listen, what's not your own doing? All of that. Faith's a gift. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who gave them new life. We're born again, Jesus says, John chapter 3, born from above by the sovereign grace of God of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives the gift of faith. Men, man cannot hear and believe apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. You don't have to turn there, just listen. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God, in other words, someone who's indwelled by a new creation in the Spirit of God, no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. It's not something believers say. Not someone who's a new creature. And no one can, listen to that, no one can, is able, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What's his point? Not you can't mouth the words Jesus is Lord. Anybody can mouth the words Jesus is Lord. Anybody can mouth the words Jesus is accursed. The question is, are you cursing Jesus? I just read the words Jesus is a curse. I can clearly mouth them, right? As one and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. But is that what's coming from my heart because of 
right? The work of the Holy Spirit. Do I say Jesus is Lord as one who trusts in him, as one who rests in him, as one who receives his grace, as one who has been brought to new life by the Holy Spirit? Do I see Jesus as Lord in that manner? Because no one can except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear, eyes to see, life to our dead hearts. It's only by the working of the Holy Spirit that we have new life, that we can confess Christ as our Savior and Lord. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can trust the saving work of God. It's only by the Holy Spirit that we can have faith to look, at Christ, look to Christ. But I do not, please hear me, I do not hereby deny the responsibility of man to choose to trust Christ. There was no violence done to their wills. Yet we still uphold that even a man's faith is all of grace as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how our Baptist fathers said this, that this was the work of the Holy Spirit. Now understand, they're saying this in agreement with the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists, the Dutch Reform, the German Reform, the Swiss Reform, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, okay? The, the Protestant Reformers. Listen to how they speak to this. The Holy Spirit enlightened their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. They're just pointing to 1 Corinthians 2.14 there. Taking away their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh. They're pointing to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Renewing their wills, causing them to walk in his statutes. Ezekiel 36, Isaiah, or excuse me, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually, in other words, effectively, powerfully drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come. Listen, yet he's, the Holy Spirit does this, so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. You follow that? You come most freely being made willing by his grace. Now, you want to splice that out? You have to go, jump back in the eternal counsel of God. I'm not going to do that for you because I wasn't there. I'm not him. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's by the work of the Holy Spirit that we are effectually called to union with Christ through faith and sealed with the Holy Spirit. And notice that Paul says in Ephesians 1 and verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The giving of the Holy Spirit, his being poured out to establish the kingdom of Christ, was implied, was implicit in the promises to Abraham that all the earth would be blessed in his seed. Now Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, the prophets, among others, all explicitly, explicitly point forward to the promised Holy Spirit. And Paul addresses this in Galatians 3.14. Listen to what he says. So that in Christ Jesus, see that? Union with Christ. In Christ Jesus... The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we receive the promised Spirit through faith. We receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. So the Holy Spirit is involved, and here's what I want to drive at, is involved in the application of the redeeming of work, in the redeeming work of Christ from the beginning of your salvation to the end of your salvation. If you will, in the application of the work of Christ to your life, in the application of the Father's electing purpose to your life, the Holy Spirit is the Alpha and the Omega. The Holy Spirit, second, the Holy Spirit seals us. Here's the second thing. That's Holy Spirit's effectual calling. The Holy Spirit seals us as Christ's own possession. The Holy Spirit seals us as Christ's own possession is the second major thing I want to get at. As I keep speaking about the Holy Spirit sealing us, I have not defined what sealing is, have I? 
What is sealing? What does it mean the Holy Spirit seals us? What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? And we don't generally speak that way. So I want to define the sealing of the Holy Spirit and then point at really two twin benefits, if you will, interrelated or locked in together benefits of that sealing. A seal, what is a seal? A seal is a sign of ownership, a sign of authenticity, a way of securing something. The idea here is that of a seal of, in this text, I think, is that of a seal of ownership and security. Like like someone might brand or place a seal upon their cattle to say, these are our cattle. They've been marked as our own. They belong to us. In other words, you're sealed as the possession of another. Hear that? The Holy Spirit seals you. He marks you as being the possession of another. The Holy Spirit marks you, and he is the mark. The word sealing here is passive. The verb is passive. In other words, the idea here is that you are being sealed, not you're doing anything here. You're being sealed. You're you're being marked as belonging to the Lord. You belong to Christ. You have the same Holy Spirit with which he was sealed. In John 6, 27, you don't need to turn there, but listen. In John 6, 27, Jesus tells us that the Father set his seal on the Son. Father set a seal on the Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. As the Spirit descends upon him. The Father set his seal on the Son, and the same Holy Spirit with which he sealed the Son is the Holy Spirit with which he sealed you in the Son. You are Christ and he is yours. And there are two twin benefits to this. First, first benefit, this guarantees our inheritance in Christ. Do you hear that? The sealing of the Holy Spirit, being marked out as Christ's own possession, guarantees our inheritance in Christ. Look at verse 14. You're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit, who is, that's who who is modifying, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance. Because the Holy Spirit has given you eyes to see the good news of the glory of Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has given you ears to hear the proclamation of the good news in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of faith. Because the Holy Spirit has given you the ability to confess Jesus Lord. Because the Holy Spirit has given you new life in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has borne witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. Because the Holy Spirit has come into your heart crying, Abba, Father. Because the Holy Spirit has sealed you as Christ. You have the down payment of your inheritance in Christ. You know that all that is Christ's is yours. That You've been married to Christ and you're one with him. He is yours. The Holy Spirit is the one who guarantees that. Who guarantees your inheritance in Christ? Not your strength of faith. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. Not your strength of character. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. Not your good works. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. Not another man. Not the papacy. Not the pastor of your local church. 
The Holy Spirit guarantees your inheritance in Christ. He is the seal. He's the mark that you belong to him. Second, twin benefit. This guarantees Christ's inheritance of us. Did you hear that? Not just our inheritance in Christ, but his inheritance of us. Look at Ephesians 1.14 again. It says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? And then this word, this phrase, until we acquire, acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I don't, I don't love the way that ESV has translated this, until we acquire possession of it. I think it's unhelpful. The Greek quite literally says this, until the redemption of the possession. That's what it quite literally says. Until the redemption of the possession. Perhaps we can speak it of it this way. The Holy Spirit has sealed us as Christ's possession. The Holy Spirit being the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of Christ's possession. In this text, we are the possession being redeemed. The Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4, 4 30, chapter 4 and verse 30, the Holy Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. In other words, we have been redeemed historically by Christ. That is being applied to us already, yet there is a coming day of redemption when Christ redeems fully and finally his possession. We've been sealed for that day by the Holy Spirit. We are Christ's possession, and the Holy Spirit has sealed us until that great day in which Jesus redeems his bride. He inherits us. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, we're called a people for his what? Own possession. We belong to Christ. He is ours and we are his. The Father has given to his Son the gift of a bride, the church. The Son has come to redeem his bride, the church, at the cost of his own life. The Holy Spirit has come to seal and secure the bride of Christ, the church, by uniting us to Christ through faith and indwelling us as a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ until he redeems his possession. So let me give you an example of this. When someone puts down some kind of surety, some kind of deposit, they guarantee their final purchase of something, right? So when you go to buy a house, you put down a deposit. That deposit actually goes toward the final payment of that home, doesn't it? Toward the final cost. You go to buy a house, you put down a deposit, and in doing so, when you put down the deposit, you're giving a guarantee that deposit, with that deposit, that you will return and complete the transaction and finally redeem your purchase. And the greater the deposit, the greater the certainty you will return to redeem your purchase, right? And Paul is saying that God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. That he, the Holy Spirit, is the down payment, the deposit of your final redemption. And here's the question. Can there be a greater guarantee than God himself? Can there be? Think of how the Trinity and a salvific work give you such great assurance as believers the Father predestined you for adoption in Christ and elected you to be holy and blameless in Him before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, to the praise of His glory. The Son saved you through His own blood in 
his historical work of redemption and revealed to us that all things are redeemed in him and obtained for us an eternal inheritance. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit applied all of this to your own life, being himself the down payment, the surety, the seal of God guaranteeing that Christ is yours and you are his until he returns to redeem his possession. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. This whole Trinitarian salvation has been done to the praise of his glory. Sovereign grace, behold your Trinitarian Lord and your salvation to the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit. Read with me again Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. And we read it doxologically as an act of worship with the Apostle Paul. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand how incredibly gracious our salvation is. It helps us to understand, Father, that, that you are one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to understand that all of your work as God is one undivided work because you are one God, and yet that we can see in Scripture eminently attributed to each person these various works of salvation. Father, you, in electing and predestining us in Christ, your Son, in 
redeeming us in history, your spirit, and applying that to our lives and our own personal experience. May we rejoice in the fact that our salvation is a Trinitarian salvation, a salvation holy of grace and holy from you, our God. And that it is so to the praise of your glory. May we, as we understand more and more our Christian life, look away from ourselves. May we sing, pray, praise as Paul does. Where we can't think of you without breaking forth into praise with all sorts of descriptions about your person and your work, giving great glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.